Two Poor Bastards contains explicit content and drunken ramblings. Listener discretion is advised. where two friends get drunk, talk whiskey, and their favorite pop culture obsessions. This is Eric. And this is Kyle. And you are on episode two of Two Poor Bastards. So we're going to get hopping in right into the whiskey of the week. I'm excited about this. I When I saw you unfurling it, I got happy. So give me your little, uh, your little piece on it. All right. So for this week... Uh... I kind of dipped into my irreplaceable whiskey stash. Yeah. Um, it's not something that's too impossible to get, but it only comes out once a year, and it is Michter's 10-year single barrel. Now, with this stuff here, being a single barrel, I might have touched on this last week, um, literally what's in the bottle comes from a single barrel it's not added to any other barrels like most either small batch or just regular run whiskeys are where they just dump a ton of barrels mix them together put them to the proof they want and bottle them up this is taken from one barrel brought down to proof bottled and there it goes now with a single barrel whiskey you run the chance of getting a really terrible barrel but on the other hand you also could get the amazing experience of getting like a super cherry barrel, like one that is better than all the other ones, one that's just like head and shoulders above everything else. But typically people who work at distilleries, they're going around their sampling barrels and those ones really get pulled before anything else for some other special thing. Gotcha. Now, with this guy uh, being from Michter's, uh, Michter's started out as a non-distiller producer, so you touched on that last week. Yep. Yeah, so, so what this means is they have a company, they bottle the stuff, they sell it, but they did not distill it. So this was sourced from somewhere else. We don't know where this whiskey came from. We don't know what the mash bill is. All we know is that this guy is ten years old. Now, there had been rumors that past Michter's 10-year releases had actually been older than what the age statement is. Um, Why they chose to label that as a 10-year, if they truly did do that, is kind of odd. Um, If it were a blend of different whiskeys, I could see that being the case where the youngest one has to be the age statement. Uh, They do that because if you were doing a blend and you had like a 40-year-old whiskey in it, and you just put an eyedropper of it in there, you couldn't claim that that's what it was. Um, With this, um, I had also in the past heard rumors that, you know, oh, it's not that great. Some of it's just, you know, it's overpriced for what it is. It's not that great. 
Um, I took the chance on it going in with that. But then again, it's single barrel. So somebody could have had just a really terrible, terrible barrel, which I've had before with other things and just, you know, blew that out of proportion. But um, enough talk about that. We can get into actually sampling it yes, here. I'm waiting for I, the sample. Yes, I have been waiting too. Cheers, motherfucker. Cheers. So smelling it. I get, it's a real light aroma. It's not too heavy, a little on the thin side. I smell like, almost like candy. Mm. Like hard candy, not like chocolate or something like that, but a hard candy. Like, I don't know what it is, but just smelling it, I would say I get a hint of, Maybe Brown Foreman as the distillery. <laughs> okay, I was to say, what is that? It's I. You would have to have kind of almost. Actually, I'm getting like a hint of iodine to it too. Okay, I I can pick that up. And if you have something like Old Forester, either the 1920 or their birthday bourbon, it's almost a little bit of that. Maybe kind of a little bit of nutty nuttiness to it Ooh. as well, but not in the bad way, a good way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, remind me to talk about nutty nuttiness later after we taste it, so I can go okay. off on a tangent on that. All but right. Um, all right, all right, screw it. We're gonna taste it because mm, I'm, I'm I don't want to smell you're anymore. Fucking, you listen. I'm ready. Let's go. I'm just reminded of the first time I opened this bottle and I took a sip. I was like, damn, this is good whiskey. Going <laughs> full circle. <laughs> going full circle on my list after tasting it and knowing a lot of stuff. I just really appreciated it. And I was like, whoa, this is good. This is the kind of stuff that I could blast all day, every day, if it were available. Now, tasting it, I don't get the the same thing that I did when I smell it. I don't get that no. old forester. So let me let me ask you this. So what I've noticed a lot of times when you, there's a big difference between what you smell in a whiskey and then what you actually end up tasting. So what is the, do you know the process of that or what's going on? I don't know. I was just going to say it, it could also go the other way too. Like I've smelled something in it and I definitely have tasted it as well. And there's, and Yes, some cases it goes real sideways where what you smell is definitely not what you taste. Hmm. Big example of that was this latest year's Pappy Van Winkle line. Like the 15 year, the, both, well, not both, but all three, the 12, the 15, and the 20 year, I thought were terrible. I thought they were awful. Uh, they smelled great, but as soon as it came to tasting it and the finish on them, garbage, I thought. The, the 10 year was by far the best. And the 23-year-old wasn't terrible. It was interesting, but it wasn't all that great. And you've touched on in the previous episode that whiskeys are not necessarily meant to be aged for a, hu- a very long time. You said about 9, 10 years is the sweet spot. Yeah, there are there's definitely sweet spots, but I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule. And there's other things that can be done, mm-hmm. whatever you get. Okay, so when I'm tasting this... 
what I get, it's uh, just about 95 proof. It's 94 point... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 94.4 proof. So 72... 72. I'm sorry. I just had a moment there. 47.2% alcohol. So it's a little bit higher than a normal one, but it definitely doesn't have that kind of bite. I was just going to say, the for being the proof that it is, it it finishes well. Like, I like the finish. Like, it, it sits well afterwards. And it kind of it hits me a little bit in the chest, like, afterwards. Mm-hmm. But but I mean, not in the mouth? But not, it doesn't hit me in the mouth. <laughs> it, it goes to the chest. It goes right to the back of the throat. It's uh, the mouthfeel is kind of on the medium side. Now, what I really mm-hmm. look for, like what I look for in a whiskey is a good mouthfeel, really oily. Like that. Like almost like not quite to the point where you are, you know, drinking honey, that kind of thing where you feel it coating the inside of your mouth. But like you can get the idea of how that would feel. So something similar to that is. What's the pro- What is the oily aspect of? Of whiskey, I don't. I wouldn't say it's oily. It just that's the thing that you would describe how it feels. Well, yeah, because drinking this, what I feel is a. I'm going to use completely layman off terms, but it's like you hacked a good loogie, and you've got that after finish of spitting. <laughs> it's that little, you know, just just a little bit of something there. A little, it's viscous. Maybe. Yes, there, very viscous feeling. Thank you, and maybe, layperson, for bringing in the proper term that we so, should be using. I mean, maybe, and someone probably knows better, but maybe it's the fact of what it, how it's interacting with our with our mouths and our we're producing saliva in a particular way. I don't know. I'm sure there's some crazy science behind it. But I will tell you that yes, there is a oily aspect to this, and it finishes well. And it does have a nice long finish, which is also something you really want in a good. I whiskey. love good long finishes. I wish I could have them all the time. I, I do too. <laughs> Just have whiskey all the time, and then also have long finishes. <laughs> so tasting it, uh, going back to the candy thing, I almost get like Werther is original. Yeah, it's a very toffee taste out of it. Uh, <laughs> well, I would say imagine. Not tasting the Werther's at all and just having the aftertaste of Werther's. That works too. Yeah. Yeah, like you just got done eating the Werther's and what your mouth feels like afterwards is what this finishes off like. And then going back off of what I got from the nose on it earlier is a little bit of nuttiness. Not a lot, but just a hint of it. Not anything that would put me off because some of that does like the earthy nutty stuff. I'm not a huge fan of, which... Is a lot of Heaven Hill stuff, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I just wish we knew where this came from. You know, there is a trick to at least find out where a bottled whiskey comes from. Because on the bottle, it'll say where it, they have to disclose where it was distilled. And on here, it actually doesn't say. Well, holy shit. They it just not. says bottled by Michter's Distillery, Louisville, Kentucky. 
let me ask. I'm a, I want to ask a question about uh, maybe geography and history a little bit. So, is bourbon called bourbon because it's from Bourbon, Kentucky? No, actually, it can be from other places. But is that like the originator of? I would say if you're really gonna call it that, it should be from there. Like champagne should be from the champagne well, like region. Tequila is from the tequila province of Mexico, and it can't be called you. You can make that product, but you can't call it tequila. What is it, mezcal or something like something that like from that. other places? I yeah. I, don't, I know nothing about liquor that isn't brown. Well, you can get brown tequila. It's just as varied as whiskeys. Yes, the aged stuff. Right. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> so what I was what I was trying to tell Eric was like sometimes if you look. I guess it's going to be sometimes now. If you look at the back of a bottle and you're not sure where something comes from, it usually discloses where it's distilled. Whether it's from Indiana, if it's from MGP, if it's from Canada, if it's something else like Whistlepig, all their uh, starting out stock was sourced from Canada. But this, I don't know. But The way that it tastes, though, I would have to say that it came from one of the Kentucky distilleries. It wouldn't, I doubt it. I highly doubt it would be from anywhere else for any of their product. I will say I enjoy it. That's something that I could drink every day. Now, is this a, a spendy little, little this, girl? This is pretty expensive. Um, the, I, this is another one that I was fortunate enough to pick up at Total Wine. They had one bottle sitting at like their tasting desk hidden, and I walked by three times, and I just said, fuck it. I'm taking this and bringing it right up front, and I'm buying it. I don't know if they had it set aside for some reason or what, but I was just like, I debated enough. I'm just going to go for it. So it was $95. Okay, yeah. And I also saw it for sale at one of the other liquor stores that I go to, usually that I do my tastings at. Mm-hmm. They were selling it for one forty. Holy shit! So you got a kind of got a deal, kind of. But I'm sure like... that was more like the manufacturer's suggested price, and they this other place that I go to tastings has been known to bump prices quite uh, a bit on some things. Like I got gotcha. you. Going back to Pappy again, the twenty three year old is supposed to be like the manufacturer's suggested price, right around I believe it's two fifty, two sixty. They sell it for four hundred when they do their lotteries for it. That is idiotic. That's some bullshit. Yeah, but people will gladly pay that. Cause something that I haven't gotten into that really fires me up is the bourbon secondary market, where it's the fucking Wild West and shit goes crazy. So typically that, well, we can start with this. On the secondary market, Michter's tenure, you can typically pick up for about 150 bucks, sometimes shipped. So that's not much worse than what that liquor store was charging with their bumped up price. So they're just going straight to secondary market prices then? Pretty much. They're just like... <laughs> but something like 23-year-old Pappy, depending on the year, can come... You know, that can command up to $2,000. Like, this latest year, 2017, was not that great, but you can still get, like, $1,600 for that, no problem. Holy shit. And people pay that. And there's stuff that's way more expensive. So, like, going off off the Michter stuff here, unlike you, I know you're a fan of their bourbons. Mm -hmm. 
I have never had any of their bourbons that weren't their limited edition ones. So I've had the 10 year, I've had the 20 year, and I've had the 25 year. Really? Yeah. And they were good. Uh, I had those back in 2015 at a tasting. Uh, sadly, I wasn't able to get any. But uh, those guys, the retail price is high. But on the secondary market, something like the 25 year, thirty six to $4,000. Yowza. And that's even if you get a... Because we're at, we had a previous conversation that we're flyover territory for... Yeah, so whiskey. I think the state got like couple bottles like two or three of those ones they were when i did the tasting they weren't even available for sale like the one bottle they got we tasted and that was it so there wasn't even one for sale after that in the lottery where do you so where do you go for tasting this is like other than like for me walking into total wine and be like there's someone there i don't where do you is there like an exclusive event do they put out like hey so-and-so liquor store is having a, a tasting like if you get on email listings for some of the places around here i don't know if i really want to name names because i don't want to be like well this place really bumps prices and that sucks but i go there and i do the tastings and that's cool we'll just talk about well we won't talk about pricing we'll just talking about where you go and kind of how it works so you go you get on an email list. So usually you get on the email list or for some douchier places, be in their like membership clubs and have to spend X amount of dollars Yuck. to then be considered for that. Um, That's a private club. I got gotcha. you. All right. It's it's for, yeah, for the rich people, here's the good stuff because they're spending the money. I am by no means a rich person. And <laughs> I don't know. I had a like a very favorite liquor store that I used to go to. And I got friendly with the guy who orders the spirits there and, you know, worked out a thing. And typically when people are giving advice on how do I get these good bottles? How can I, you know, get into that? It's like, be friendly with your local liquor store, talk to them, become friends, buy lots of stuff. So I did that, talked to this guy, bought lots of stuff, got on the email list, Went to my uh, first tasting for all this other fancy stuff. And then, like, after that, it all went downhill because that guy didn't work there anymore. I don't know what the reasons were, but he wasn't working there anymore. Um, I wasn't getting emails anymore. I had been removed from the list. I would call and ask, like, hey, have the emails gone out for the tasting yet? Because I'm sitting here waiting and I had been told like a month after when they had the tasting that they still hadn't had it yet. So I got blatantly lied to, went in and went to talk to, you know, who is in charge. And it's like, then I find out that the people that I knew who were there before are all gone for some reason. Oh, wow. And was given this excuse that, yeah, we stopped doing that and deleted people from the email list because the same 40 people ended up going every time. I'm like, why did I get deleted? I just went to my first one and, you know, I'm starting out in all this and it was a mess. So to clarify, to uh, gain favor, there there was no over-the-pants handies. There might be, but I haven't gone down that path yet. Okay, Maybe that's why. Because I'm just saying, like, when we're talking, like, $3,500 to $5,000 a bottle... 
sometimes this I feel is, yeah this is purely secondary market though oh so. okay all right all right good stuff which if you want the good stuff now that's really the only place you can go to get it i haven't seen a bottle of blanton's on the shelf for over a year i haven't seen a bottle of weller special reserve on the shelf for a year here in minnesota i feel very thankful that you had shared some of your weller with me because it was very good it is very good uh and again that's another one that i would i would like to enjoy frequently so how do you so you can can you order directly from distilleries or online buyers so it's no but if you go and go to the gift shops in some of the distilleries they've got really hot stuff there too like willette is a famous one Mm -hmm. they used to be also a non-distiller producer and they had all these sourced old barrels and they would put out special ones and have them in their gift shop for sale um i'd say out of anyone who you know bottles whiskey whether they distill it themselves or not the percentage of hyper expensive bottles the majority of them come from Willette. I mean, even stuff that's not even really old will go for big bucks for some of the things they have. But they were putting out some old stuff like 25-year-old uh, bourbons and ryes. Some of mm. them just go for mega bucks, thousands of dollars. At the gift uh, shop. Not at the gift shop, secondary market. Sorry, secondary at market. the gift shop, they are kind of expensive. You know, a couple, few hundred dollars for that kind of thing. Well, but what you're saying is we should take a road trip we should go to these places and we should bring some money with us to buy some of these yes fine wares definitely okay i'm getting off the rails with this conversation no no it's fine i'm i feel really enlightened like i feel like i've actually learned something because here i was going to use like my layman person words for the whiskey and i you know it's like Vaguely sexual, with a hint of melancholy, with some other word. Like, I don't have any of the proper words to... And I don't understand, you know, are the terms that you're using standard? Some of them are standard. What I'm talking about, how it tastes like or how it smells, I mean, there's no standard for that. It's whatever you're getting. Because, uh... Like with wine, that's very clearly different. Like it has a very, like there's very specific terms you use to describe wine. So I've heard, I don't know. I've heard other people talk about wine and I'm, I'm more lost when people talk about wine. Cause I have like, I just don't drink wine at all. I, I don't either. And I feel like that's like in a whole different dimension. It is. Is that kind of stuff. I feel like I'm not good enough to drink wine. Like that's a whole other world of things and i i have no idea i have like basically i have nothing to do with wine but on the other hand champagne is my jam (laughs) (laughs) i do i do like champagne you know what i'm not gonna hate on that i like champagne too it's really tasty all right so does that finish up your segment good sir it doesn't because i wanted to go into i wanted to go into actually mictors as a company. So, like I said before, they were a non-distiller producer. But 
Originally, uh, Michter's was produced at uh, the old Bomberger's distillery in Pennsylvania. Okay. So that happened from about... The bomb. <laughs> Michter's as an actual brand existed from about the 50s to the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then in 2004, the rights for the name were acquired uh, by... Uh, Chatham Imports, and they started both acquiring and selling um, juice that they got from other distilleries. Okay, basically, sometimes I'll refer to whiskey as juice. Okay, when we're talking always about squeeze it. the juice as well. Uh, the juice is loose. <laughs> oh, um, <no. laughs> so they they got most of their stuff from other people. What we're having right now, they got from someone else. Most likely, the regular bourbons that you've had, they got from someone else. Um, I skipped by it earlier when I said I've only had their limited edition bourbons, but I've only had their standard edition rye whiskeys. And whoever they're getting the rye from, it's really good stuff. And I'm a big fan of that. I wish I could have got some of their limited edition ryes. So is it, say, other famous distilleries, that company will say, we want to buy so many barrels from you and then they just package it as their own is that how that works exactly yeah they the other company distills it puts it in a barrel gives it to them they store it however they want and sometimes the barrels have been pre-stored at these other places too so gotcha. they could have a barrel that they've had sitting around for say 10 years and then someone talks to them is like hey we want to buy x amount of this can we get this, that, or the other thing? They go, oh, okay, we've got this. You can buy it at X price. We've had it here for this long. Whatever. It gets sent out to them. So my next question for you is, have you tried to pretend to start a whiskey company and buy a barrel? No, because it's exceedingly expensive. Okay. Uh, a while back, famously on the internet, I think it was like a Costco or Sam's Club had a barrel of just Jack Daniels for sale. Like, you can buy a whole barrel. And it was something like $7,000. Holy shit. And this is for really a shelf turd. Yeah. Shitty. Like shitty the worst. Whiskey. The worst. Yeah. I got you. Maybe not the worst. I've had some pretty okay, bad stuff. Okay, it's not the worst, but it's I would bottom. never drink it. Yeah. Is basically what I would say. Not I'll, even mixed. I wouldn't drink Jack Daniels. No, if you had a, if you went to a bar or you went to a restaurant and they you were getting a mixed drink, you would not. And yes, we do drink mixed drinks. And you and I have a common mixed drink we like, which is an old-fashioned, which, you know. Above that, though, I would prefer a Manhattan, though. But I do like a good old-fashioned. There you are. Yep. yep, yep <laughs> and yep. a good old-fashioned. <laughs> a good old-fashioned handy jammer. All right. So that's that's very interesting because I, I had no you know when you talked about mixed mixers being you know they basically source their their product it, it seems really interesting to me because you know distillers typically are very proud of of their product because you put very specific things into it so you have your specific way that you formulate your your whiskeys and how you store it and how you age it. So it's interesting that distilleries would sell that product right, that yeah. possibly would be you know, very distinct to them and just be like, yeah, you can label it as whatever the fuck you want. And, so, and I yeah. guess that makes sense because 
Trader Joe's and Costco have their own branded liquors and I would imagine they just as as you're saying they just buy it from a distillery exactly they slap their label on it and then all's good it's just really weird to me because it's like it's I guess it happens a lot more in reality but like typically what we are used to is a company that's well known will create a subpar or entry-level product under a particular brand that is you know not theirs but this other company makes it you know what i mean and it's typically not like the best the top of line thing mm-hmm. and what you're saying was interesting with whiskeys is you're saying like it could be a pre-aged really good whiskey or you know whatever alcohol it is and they could just buy it and slap their own label on it and say hey this is our so is there an issue with inconsistencies then with a company like Michter's there uh, the chance there always could be like I said with the single barrel thing you could get one that really fucking sucks or get one that's really good but uh, basically now Unless you're just buying the product right as it gets distilled and barreled, you aren't getting shit anymore because no distillery is going to sell anything that's been aged at all because the demand is so high. And either that or they just don't have anything to offer. So that's pretty much going to be going away. And then going off that, getting back to Michter's history here, they actually started distilling their own stuff in 2015. So soon they will actually, now they are a producing distillery. They are going to be offering their own stuff. Now, there's some drama behind Mm. the Michter's name. So, as I said earlier, it was a company that used to exist, went away, name was reacquired. So, there is a man, his name is Dick Stoll used to be the master distiller there in Pennsylvania at the Bombergers Distillery who was actually in charge of doing it. Now, he came back in and started producing stuff with his business partner, Eric Wolf. Now, he had said, if I remember correctly here... um, he was using like on their label that he used to be the master distiller for that and then the people who owned the Michter's name now came in and were saying like you can't use that name you can't say you had anything to do with it and we are going to sue you shit basically if you do so dick stole when he started his own whiskey company up after working you know, at the Bombergers Distillery doing Michter's and that kind of thing. He started up his own company with his business partner, Eric Wolf, and they had mentioned that, you know, he used to be master distiller at Bombergers. People at Michter's didn't like that. So they tried to say, you know, you can't use Bombergers, you can't say you work there, you can't do this, that, or the other thing. It's really interesting because... Those are all factual things. Yeah, they are. But they wanted to keep it from happening. So a lawsuit ensued. And basically, they wanted to make 
Dick Stoll and Eric Wolf spend all their money and just like lose everything so they couldn't open up their own distillery because they were doing the same thing. They had sourced stuff. They were a non-producer mm. distiller who were looking to open a distillery. So basically they wanted them to spend all their money so it couldn't happen. Right. And it happened. Sad. So they got it. So they took away the right for them to use the Bomberger's name in any capacity. Uh, and going off that, you know, Bomberger's was in Pennsylvania. The people who acquired Michter's then moved it to Kentucky, you know, to be more of a Kentucky bourbon. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. Um, and going with that, Michter's uses a lot of crazy stuff. In the description of this. Like, let me read you the label. Please, regale me with your description. So, Michter's, like I said earlier, started around the 50s sometime, went away late 80s, early 90s. On the label on this bottle of Michter's tenure, in big red numbers, it says 1753. (laughs) Oh, okay. And then in small letters that go around this oval-shaped label on the front, it says... Distilled in small batches according to the Michter's pre-revolutionary war quality standards dating back to 1753. Now keep in mind, this was sourced from someone else. They didn't produce a drop of this juice. Right, and they had, in reality, unless they pre-worked with another distillery to distill it to their particular... Uh, recipe they had nothing to do with any of the content in any of the way that they actually produced it no and they were saying that you know george washington gave mictors to his troops and this holy kind of shit <laughs> yeah so it's just like all these wild things are Listen, being said jesus gave this to the founding fathers of america when they're writing the declaration of independence like this is the whiskey that started everything so there i mean and just going off that, there's a lot of, you know, not so good things probably going on there. But when it comes down to it, when I drink this, this is fucking delicious and I yeah. like it and I want more. So what you're saying is there's a lot of hyperbole when it comes to Michter's, which God bless them for trying to like hype up a whole bunch of unverifiable bullshit, but it's still good. At the end of the day, what we're saying, what you're saying, is this good stuff. It's still good. And then there's some people out there like, oh, they fucked over people. I'm never drinking it again and that kind of stuff. Which a while back, some drama happened with Bullet as far as a brand in the Bullet family, the actual family. And I know there was a local liquor store that after they saw like the first big breaking news on that how one of the people in the bullet family got really screwed over by the whole deal they're like we're gonna reevaluate things and we're gonna look into not carrying it anymore because of this well they still carry it not carrying bullet or mixter mixters bullet okay so that's all that's clearly a subject that we need to do later on yeah i'll get into that because i mean bullet rye had been a big thing for me for a long time Mm mm-hmm so we'll get into it. We'll talk about that later. Indeed. But we've talked about whiskey long enough. All right. And so it's time to get into the topic of the week. Yeah, the topic of the week. So uh, I've seen this movie 
many, 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 many times. And this is your... This is my... I would say that this is... I have to say this is the first time I've seen this movie. I'd seen bits and pieces. I thought I'd seen the movie before. But I assure you, this was our very first... My very first viewing of this movie. And I'm going to be honest with you because, you know, part of our camaraderie, I suppose, for us is that we mutually enjoy very strange bizarre movies we think of each other like if something comes out that's really weird like this is the person i'm gonna go see it with so i was very excited when you when i had talked about it as a subject to cover that you were like yeah I, i saw that like once a really long time ago and i'm like okay clearly you need to re experience this and, uh, it was an experience. Yeah. So the the main subject, or not the main subject, the whiskey is just as important. The the other topic, the pop culture topic, is Naked Lunch, or the movie Naked Lunch versus the book itself. So we had watched, I had, again, I had rewatched, this is, I've seen it many, many times, but I'd watched it with you, and that was a great joy for me. <laughs> it was. I there's certain things that I there's certain movies that I enjoy watching with other people just because I know that they're going to elicit a certain kind of very raw reaction one way or another be it really enjoying it or really like what the fuck is going on so please do tell give me your your insights into what you saw and your thoughts okay so it's almost to you it's almost as exciting to watch the person watching it as it is to watch the movie itself. Absolutely. There's a a video game series that I like to do the same thing with. But anyways, so totally the layperson as far as this goes. Going into it, I had realized within the first two minutes of the movie that, yes, I definitely have not seen the whole thing. I just remembered the Mugwump, and that's about it. Yeah. So, first viewing of the movie, I was like, what the fuck? Yes! And like Eric had mentioned, I like real weird shit. Eric likes really weird shit. We went and saw Neon Demon together because we were like, okay, this is the movie for us. It's going to be weird. We watched it. And I'd have friends ask me about it later. They're like, hey, did you see that movie? What did you think? I was like, I thought it was really great. Mm-hmm. Be like, so you're saying I should watch it? And I would be like, absolutely not. I do not know <laughs> anyone other than you right. who would enjoy that movie. And you probably don't know anyone other than me who would enjoy that movie no, either. And honestly, like, it's to, to hit on that movie specifically, there's not been a single person in my circle of life that I've sat down and watched that movie. Like, I own it. I bought it. I, you know, I enjoy that filmmaker. And uh, I, there's no one else I can think of in my circle of I friends. No, I wouldn't watch it with anyone else either. Exactly. That was a great... So, just to hit on that real quick. We went to... It must have been at least the opening week. I'm not sure. If, it wasn't the It opening. was because it wasn't in the theater long. So, we went. There was 10 people in the theater... And I think there was five people left, including us, by the time the movie ended. Like, people got up and walked the fuck out. I have, besides that, the only other movie I had seen people walk out of was Year One. 
And it was like a family went into it thinking it was a comedy. (laughs) And then when the old dudes like rub hot oil on my body to Michael Sarah (laughs) for like the third time, (laughs) then the family got up and left. Oh, that's amazing. So this going into this movie, it was I thought that this movie was really weird. I was talking to a friend at work about it today. And I was like, yeah, we're doing that for the podcast today. And he was like, what's the movie about? And I just, I paused for a moment. I took a deep breath and sighed because I didn't really know how to explain what this movie was about to someone. So this is what I told him, not quite verbatim, but this is close to what I said. This is how I describe Naked Lunch as a movie. I'm so excited for this. So a guy, Peter Weller, whose name is Bill Yep, Bill. Bill in the movie is like an an exterminator, a bug exterminator. Yep. He is he and his wife are hooked on whatever sawdust powder it is. He sprays for roaches. Perithrum. They use it as a drug. And they're hooked on it and basically what happens from there is They get high on it. Some of Bill's friends have sex with his wife. He accidentally, quote unquote, I don't know if it was an accident (laughs) or not. He accidentally shoots his wife in the head and then leisurely trades his gun for a typewriter and moves to somewhere in North Africa, Morocco. In the movie, it's interzone. I was getting to that. He moves there, but he's told it's a place called Interzone. When he's there, he walks around a lot. He attempts to type on his typewriter, which is a bug with a talking asshole. <laughs> yes. There is homosexuality is sprinkled in it somehow, mainly I think just for shock value for the time that the movie was made, but it's in there really for no reason at all. <laughs> Uh, he he gets led to believe he's some kind of secret agent, and in the end, everyone ends up like sucking the head dicks <laughs> of the mugwumps, these creatures that look like aliens <laughs> yeah. that have jizz coming out of their heads, and yeah. that's how the movie ends. And I was saying like it felt really long, and not many movies I have been like, is it over yet? How long is this going to take? That movie could have ended at any point in time throughout its whole run and it wouldn't have been any different so it's like to me i don't know what the fuck the movie was about it was really weird i don't think that i would probably watch that movie again wow okay i think i'm a one and done i'm one and done with that so that movie has a lot more there's there's a lot going on with it and we can't unpack all of it in this conversation, but uh, there's a lot of uh, deep metaphors going on with it. And so the film is different than the book. So naturally, that's usually what happens. So the main thing is Naked Lunch, the movie is inspired by, I would say, Naked Lunch, the book, the beat book that came out in 1958 by William S. Burroughs. And it was banned. 
straight up universally banned for being so horrifically grotesque uh, that no one could, uh, in civilized society, bear to even be around it. So uh, I think Willie or David Cronenberg, so it's a David Cronenberg movie. Written and directed by Cronenberg. So one of the things that he had said is, you know, he had wanted to make a movie about it, but trying to tackle it, he couldn't do a literal adaption. There was two main reasons. Number one, the scope. So the scope is, is you're alluded to that there's more things going on, a greater scale of what's happening. So in his estimate, in 1991, when they're doing the movie, it said it would have cost four or five hundred million dollars to make if it was a literal adaption and then he has this wonderful quote that i i absolutely love and he was basically saying something to the effect that if it was a literal adaption that no culture could withstand the (laughs) withstand the movie uh because it is i've read the book and it is it is very shocking and i'll tell you that with good reason they couldn't do you couldn't do it it would be it's such a number one just the format and number two just the content of what the uh the book is about there's just there's just no way there's just no way it would ever be even today with how weird everything is and how open we think society is we still couldn't talk about these things because the things it talks about is, is absolutely mind-shattering to like the status quo. So we can get into. So is that your consensus? Your kind of your cliff notes of thoughts of the movie? That yeah, I'm scratching the surface. But then again, I also want to say like I was really tired. I wanted the movie to be over sooner, right. and I wasn't really looking as my first real viewing of it i wasn't deep diving for you know more meaning well let me ask you this was it memorable absolutely i'll tell you that much do you feel that after seeing that movie that there are there are moments in it that'll stick with you oh yeah for sure so i think a a hallmark of a good movie and being whether or not you can initially understand it is what impact does it have on you and if it's a movie that sticks with you after a viewing the first day in into infinity you know that movie did something right you might not agree with the subject matter you might not necessarily understand everything that's going on but if it's a movie or anything be it song or a piece of artwork or, or whatever it is if it sticks with you then it's done something right, correctly. It's provoked something out of you that you will never forget. Definitely. So I was, you know, Naked Lunch is one of those movies, and I love showing it to people. And most people come out exactly what you're talking about. But then my favorite thing to do, and, and what I'll do with you now, is make subtle references to the, to that movie in everyday conversation around other people. And you and I will now have a private, you know, dialogue. Oh, we have our own little thing. <laughs> our own little thing, because it, it we've experienced this this movie together, and I think it's one of those things that's important to watch. So I'm going to get into. So what I'll touch on is a little bit 
a broad overview of the book itself. We're not going to get into the, it's just, again, the book is a whole other thing. And then we're going to get into the movie itself. So, uh, William S. Burroughs wrote this book. So he went to Tangier, which is in Morocco, 1953, after a failed affair with Allen Ginsberg. So for people that don't know, William S. Burroughs is affiliated with the Beat Poet Generation. So Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, himself, uh, were the fathers, if you will, of what would become the Beat Generation. So he ran off to Tanzania, or Tangier, excuse me, sorry. And one of his main ways of communicating with people is he would write uh, letters and then do routine. So he'd write these little stories and he would take them to extremes. So they'd just be these over the, over the top, extreme little stories. So he was over the course of five years, he was selling or sending Allen Ginsberg these, it would be a personal letter saying, you know, talking about like what's going on in his life. And then he would send routine as they were called. And that's the shorthand between Ginsburg and Burroughs and anyone that, talk, that knows about Burroughs is that he would write routines. So he sent to them over the course of the five years. And uh, they were just, they were strange little things. And one of one of the things that they, they did, one of the routines in the movie, which was the talking asshole routine, where the talking, this guy trained his asshole to talk and eventually... Uh, yeah the asshole took, took over control. took control and sealed over his mouth and took control of the body so you know again a little story taken to its extreme conclusion in the most grotesque way possible and i have a very soft spot for really grotesque things that's almost like a clive barkery thing and this and again you're absolutely right it ties into my personal uh, admiration or enjoyment of really grotesque and weird shit, and so and I like authors personally that really push the boundaries. If I feel uncomfortable with it, like I know that I'm in a good place and I'm gonna like it, because I want to be challenged and I want to have that. I I don't like being pacified when I read or I'm watching something. I mean I do, but in a greater context, you know I like being challenged in that way. So when Burroughs was putting the book together, he saw it as a traditional book. Uh, he shopped it around to everyone, but because it was so obscene, because again, this is 1957, right around, is around the time that he was trying to get it published. There's just no way. 1957, you're in the Eisenhower years. America would, they were not having it. So... In 1957, he moved to Paris, France, and he met a publisher there that wanted to release it. So at the end of his Tanzania or Tangier expedition writing this book, he had 500 pages of notes. Uh, some were finished, some were very rudimentary, as William Burroughs puts it. Uh, so he sat down with two other people to assemble this book. So he had finally got a publisher to agree to publish it, but the book wasn't quite ready. So uh, as they would finish chapters, they would send them off to the printer and they'd have them printed. And the book was sent back to them in an arbitrary fashion. 
And so the interesting thing about this book is that as it was being sent back, they didn't make any edits or any changes. So all the chapters were completely out of place and they made one change. So there's a scene at the beginning of the book and they moved it to the end and that's it. So they were sent back all these pages arbitrarily and they're like, that's it. That's exactly what we want. That's right. that's exactly the thing. So, and he, what he said about it was that it was closer to the facts of human perception. So as you know, when you walk down the street, you perceive things kind of out of sequence. You notice someone's hat, you notice the uh, reflection off a window, you notice a sound. And so he really liked that when the book came back, that it was more like how you would actually experience something in real life as a, as opposed to a coherent story. That's interesting because one of the notes that I have for the movie version is that, uh, what did I write down? It was just like, timelines seem really skewed. So, because my next thing, or one of the things I want to talk about is Cronenberg specifically was more concise with it. So, uh, as, as far as the movie, so David Cronenberg wanted to adapt uh, Naked Lunch and started the process in 1985. So he had actually went to Tangier, visited all the places the Burroughs had been, uh, and he started to write the script quite a while. So 1985, Cronenberg wasn't quite popular. So he had done some cult hits, things of that nature, and he went off, actually, and was filming Nightbreed. So he was an actor. He was actually the villain. So from the first episode, this kind of all ties back again. You're right. This ties back to a Clive Barker thing in more ways than one. And that's David Cronenberg was the main villain or the monster villain in Nightbreed. And so on his way back, he started to write Naked Lunch, the script. And so big distinction that he had put was that he wanted to have narrative cohesiveness that he wanted to fuse his sensibilities with Burroughs sensibilities to create something totally new so he talks about a story about (laughs) yeah they're really we could dive into that a little bit but Cronenberg has this fetish in all of his like 80s 70s and 80s movies where it he loves mutation and it's unwilling mutation. So if you've seen scanners, video drum, uh, if you've yep. seen rabid, they're all about people going through changes or mutations and they're, they have no control over them whatsoever. And it's not good. Like they're not like these beautiful, like superhumans at the end of it. Oh no, it's they're quite grotesque. It's grotesque. So, his interpretation of the movie is so he ha- he has a spin on how he's interpreting Naked Lunch. So he wanted to make a movie that worked on a human emotional level in contrast to the book. So the book is not does not deal with any sort of human aspect. There's no emotional level to it. As no emotion. No emotion. It's so this is a book written by me for me yeah i wouldn't go that far <laughs> Whew. yeah no well, so just going after the emotion thing yeah so the basic premise was to move back from the book 
and then to include the typewriter, and then to include the man writing the story. Uh, he also wanted to include the shooting death of his real-life wife, Joan. So it's not mentioned in the book at all. And so we'll kind of touch on that in a bit here as I, as I talk about you know what he was doing. So the movie deals with homosexuality, drug addiction, death, and not knowing who you are. So those are the main things. If you if you you think that homosexuality, you don't really understand what it is. But uh, one of the things that fascinated Cronenberg is the idea that homosexuality being forced upon you and that you have no ability to, to change that course. Like, what if that change was forced on you and you were an unwilling participant? What would that look like? It would look like Naked Lunch, the movie. <laughs> exactly. So he, I think Cronenberg accomplishes his um, goals for the movie very well. So uh, we'll talk about some of the themes. So Burroughs has a focus of intelligence of the disease, a question of intent. So Burroughs is mostly known for um, the Junkie Diaries, and having done drugs and being a in the throes of addiction and, and working through that and um, like referring to like disease as as having intelligence, like it has a purpose. So uh, as far as what he says, he says, disease is a part of life. And he openly questions what came first, the intestine or the tapeworm. <laughs> right? So he has this like this fascination with death, with disease, with mutation, and that's the the kinship I was I say between Cronenberg and uh, Burroughs. And it, it again the the movie is what the combination of the two minds you would get. So as far as distinction goes, you know, uh, David Cronenberg says that when Burroughs describes something as being insect-like, it's in a negative connotation. Uh, he usually describes those things when they're insect-like to be soulless or inhuman, whereas Cronenberg has a really uh, deep-seated fascination with insects. And obviously, watching Naked Lunch, you see a that's lot of the, it. Yeah, yeah, a lot of weird insects, right? So, and then some things on David Cronenberg and drugs. So Cronenberg wanted to use drugs as a metaphor as control and for addiction. So he knew that he wanted the drugs to be invented, that by inventing his own drugs, they had a metaphorical connection so that he could also stay away from, you know, he was, what he was trying to stay away from was the social political uh, issues with heroin addiction and and drug addiction and drug culture in general that he really wanted to stick to drugs as a storytelling device and a personal device to tell the story so if you notice all the hallucinations in the movie he's always doing drugs first and then he goes off the deep end so i don't know if you pick that up or not the whole thing was off the deep end (laughs) well yes but when he saw really grotesque creatures he had done drugs right beforehand. And then he also knew that he wanted the movie to be primarily about writing. So, and as far as the, the effects, 
he made things that were metaphorically created in the book by the writer and made them physically present in the movie and that they would influence him and tell him what to do. The creatures on one level are himself telling himself what to do and on the other it's the creatures themselves turning into something new and taking you through an experience. So that's Cronenberg on um, the effects and why he, you know, like the mugwumps were described in the book as being like kind of neutral creatures. They weren't what you saw in the movie. That's Cronenberg's interpretation of mugwumps. And one of my favorite parts that every time, like I was looking at you when this came up. So it's on the talking assholes. Cronenberg says the talking asshole is Burroughs himself. That in a sense, it's a part of you that you don't want to listen to because it's too base, it's too primal, and its truth is too uncivilized to be listened to. He goes on to say something to the effect of like, it's a mind asshole schism. It's more Freudian as it's the unconscious mind versus the conscious mind. It's more of a mind-mind split. As far as the, you know, on the role of the writer... Well, actually, we'll, we'll tie back around to this. One of the things with the movie, what Cronenberg was doing, was he posited, or it's in his opinion, or he implied, that the death of Joan, his wife in real life, caused the events to happen. And as a way to work through the grief and work through the shame of what he had done, that he became homosexual. So the movie is the use of drugs and grief to end up at the end of it being a homosexual man. Now the okay. truth but the truth be told was that he was bisexual primarily in real life prior to that, but in his mind or Cronenberg framed it was that the cause of the end of this or the process of grief, the process of dealing with accidentally killing your wife it was that as a way to to deal with that he turns into a homosexual man and he creates this whole he's an agent he goes to enter his own and is going to infiltrate this drug uh, company basically a, a rival company and that joan was a intergalactic uh, centipede sent to infiltrate him but they had set it up to where he was infiltrating her. Yes. It gets really convoluted. Yes. But if you think about in like if you how that story works or how it's really effective is like in reality we delude ourselves so much to justify any sort of thing. And one of the things that they mentioned in the the documentary was that William S. Burroughs doesn't believe in accidents, that you're accountable for all of your actions. So one of the things that he has to deal with every single day or he thinks about is the shooting death of his wife for the rest of his life. And he didn't die young. He kicked all his drug habits and he lived to be old as fuck. So he was living with the fact that he had killed his wife and that even though they were drunk and she had, so the difference with the movie versus real life was that she had said, it's time for our William Tell act. And then he was really drunk missed and shot her right between the eyes where in the movie he's the one that says that line 
So that's the, kind of the main difference. But in okay. real life, it was the other way around. And they had a kid together, which is not mentioned at all in the movie, obviously. It doesn't really work very well for you know narrative purposes. So that's, you know, Cronenberg is inferring by including Joan, including that those human aspects. So those other characters that are in the movie represent Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. And, you know, he basically implies that because he killed Joan, he runs off to inner zone, deals with the grief, being alone, not being connected to society, and uses the cover of being an agent to become homosexual. And it's essentially... That's forced. the best cover for <laughs> yeah, an agent. It's the best cover for an agent. And he's got to write a report. I actually have in my notes here, uh, going back to what you just said a little bit ago, that there are no accidents. There are no accidents. And again, so that ties into, you know, in the documentary that, you know, William S. Burroughs doesn't believe that there are whether you consciously or unconsciously do it, there is no, there are no accidents. There is, he did it. So he had to deal with the fact that he killed his wife. And so what's interesting in the movie is that he loops back around and meets Joan number two and kind of essentially relives that whole, that whole first part of the story over again. And then the final killing, and I'm not really necessarily sure what that's supposed to represent but maybe it's the final letting go of the fact and, and coming to the realization that he's number one. He's he is responsible for his actions because when he killed her for the second time, he wasn't high or drunk, and that it's the step into his new life. So he's going into France. So it's the transition into the next phase phase of his life, which is releasing the book. Cronenberg takes the book. He takes the life of the of the book and he uses it in his shorthand or his thematic things, which is unwilling transformation from one thing to the next and being different or worse off at the end of from the beginning to the end of that transformation, which is, you know, at the end of it, I don't know that he's any better off than he was at the beginning of it. I would say probably not. Probably not. That is really where it where the homosexuality part comes in is that, you know, in real life, you know, he was bisexual and then over the course. So as it goes in the documentary was that he, after he had killed his wife, he had never been with another woman ever again, that he was only with men from that point forward. As a Cronenberg takes it or the interpretation of that particular era as being, um, you know, the catalyst into homosexuality. And the book deals with un, unwilling homosexuality. Basically, like, what the fuck am I reading? It's some real forward thinking. It's some fucking crazy shit. So, you know, as far as, as the book goes and the, the intent. So Cronenberg says, you know, basically of the book, of the thought processes and, you know, of, uh, in his general thought of, of, you know, beat poets, I guess, is, that he, you know, he says that anything that d- disturbs the status quo is dangerous in a totalitarian society. And if you're a serious writer, questioning the status quo is what you do. 
So Burroughs deals with drug addiction, deals with very taboo sexuality, and he does it in a over-the-top, hyper-grotesque way. And then William Burroughs says something to the effect, or he says this specifically, but in regards to the reaction of Naked Lunch at a Time is, all censorship is political and has to do with control. So he's introducing contrary thoughts and things that really haven't been explored, especially in a 50s area, America or the world, and really challenges. And even now, it's challenging. You read that shit and you're like, holy fuck. So it's interesting. You know, I chose this. I was really excited to do this uh, show with you, to do this topic with you specifically. But it got me thinking about, like, why did I... What is my fascination with it? Because, like, at this point in my life, I use it as a relationship barometer. So, <laughs> so what I do is I, if I have a, a new girlfriend, I will show her that movie. Because, like, one of the things I openly talk about is my obsession with weird movies, weird, you know, things in general. And then whenever someone says, oh, yeah, I love weird movies, I'm like, okay. How much how, Do you like weird movies? How much, Prove to me what you are really saying. So I will say, have you seen Naked Lunch? And then usually 10 out of 10 times is, no, what is this movie that you're speaking of? And we watch it. And it's... It's the movie we're making. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's one of those things that like, you know, we... I'll watch this movie and I'm watching the the lady as much as I'm watching the movie because at this point I could quote the damn movie for the most part. Uh, and I then, don't know how you could do that the way that Peter Weller mumbles every line in that movie. Yeah. But anyways. So going to that, I love his reactions in those movies. They're so funny to me because like the whole scene where he's like rubbing the bug powder on the lips of the typewriter. Which that's... Uh, composition wise that particular scene oh man that's really spot on like i had to take a picture of that scene not because it was a guy rubbing a bug's asshole with (laughs) roach powder but because it was a really well put together scene composition wise my but my favorite thing is like he's like yeah okay i'm yeah and that's kind of his whole, like, whenever these grotesque things happen, his reaction is very subdued, and he's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll guess, I'll, I'll do that. That's cool. Like it's, I think that Peter Weller could have been the third character in the first season of True Detective because of just, like, how low and mumbly his voice was throughout the entire movie, speaking, which would have fit right in. Speaking really low and mumbly. With let's get lower. Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson in True Detective. I speak with a lower voice than you. Is it lower yet? Yeah, absolutely. And I love I love the first season of True Detective. It's great. Everyone does, as you should. So I I sat I really had to like examine my motivations. As to, you know, number one, why do I like that movie? Why do I 
force this on other people. And it's better than what I used to do. Because I used to have what I call the Holy Trifecta Relationship Test Movie Marathon. Which I would do uh, Apocalypse Now, Jacob's Ladder, and Wequiem for a Dream all in one sitting. Why would you do this to people? <laughs> like, I get that you want to be like, is this the one? Can they handle this? But that's a bit much. I I don't do it anymore. I stopped that. I stopped it. Because it is, I realized that it was like a little sadistic to do. And like, at the end of it, like, I realized like, oh yeah, this this is why I'm single. Because I'm, I'm a terrible person. And I force like unassuming, unaware people of these really heavy, terrible movies and basically psychologically torture them for six hours. Yeah, that's like something that you'd be like, hey, we're six months into our relationship. Will you watch one of these movies with me? You might slash probably not. like. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, watch it with me. Yeah, watch it. Like, I just met you. This is our second date. You get ready to see some shit. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna experience some shit together. It's like going off to war mutually, but like me being the person that's already gone back and forth to war a bunch of times, and like it has no effect on me. So, like I'm able to watch them. I also get this too because like once upon a time I knew a guy who was very intense, and if like. I maybe wasn't super into a girl. I'd be like, hey, you want to come out with me and one of my friends? And I would subject them to this guy just to see how they would react. Oh, that's amazing. And if they stuck around, it's like, hey, all right. All right. Hey, you can handle that. We're good. I, I So the intent, I think, was pure. The execution of my test was terrible. And I don't do it the anymore. The intent was pure. Yeah. <laughs> The intent was pure. Like, I want to see their compatibility with me and my own true. mindset, true my tastes. Because I have, like, I don't expect everyone to have my tastes. But if you could sit through certain movies and not, like, want to have them shut off or be horrified at the end of it, then we're good. We're probably in a good place. This relationship can work. But again, I'm still single. So I, you know, that might speak volumes upon itself. Eh. So one of the things is like, with that is like how far what they intended the movie to be, because obviously like we went into, I rewatched those, the making of documentary, rewatched the movie fresh with you and went into the filmmaker's perspective of what he was trying to accomplish versus what I use it for. And I think there's a common thing with pop culture and movies is like once you release something into the world, you have no control over how it's used or what it becomes. And your intent for something could very quickly be overshadowed by just how society co-ops it into whatever they want to do. And and for me, I've co-opted that movie into a weird like dating ritual. And so I, I had to think about like, well, Number one, why why am I doing that? Where did that come from? How did that start? And why do I continue to use that movie as like a benchmark for compatibility in my relationships? Because it's, it's pretty heavy. It's a heavy movie. Like it doesn't end well. Like it doesn't end as bad as Wreck-It-Woman for a Dream, but it doesn't end well. It's like seven. Like it just it ends on a 
kind of a sad note. It ends. It could have ended at any part in the movie. <laughs> yes. So, you know, number one, my fascination comes with, like, I've always liked Cronenberg movies. So I have this fascination with uh, uncontrollable, uncontrolled metamorphosis into something new. And I think when I saw Naked Lunch, I may have been 13 or something along those lines. And I had... Would you even know what you were looking at at that point? But here's what I saw, though. Here's what I saw. There's, There's certain questions. So... I'd seen a lot. I've seen a lot of Cronenberg's movies up to that point. So I'd seen Rabid and Scanners and Videodrome and The Fly. Most famously, The Fly. Jeff Goldblum. That it's a movie gr- scared the shit out of me yeah. when I was a little yep. kid. Absolutely. So those movies really scared me. They spoke to me. And so when I saw Naked Lunch, I was right in puberty. And you have like for myself, like I have all these questions about puberty you don't know like you hear about this thing you fucking go to sex ed and you're like you're gonna go through all these horrifying changes and you're gonna do all these things and everything about you is gonna change and naked lunch kind of hits those personal changes and you know also you know dealing with sexuality like me where i'm from growing up implying that someone is homosexual was the worst insult you could possibly give like it was a damning thing to say like that was the final like worst if it was implied that you're homosexual and so seeing that movie and maybe it it prompted me to think about it but i'm like well what if i'm gay what does that mean what is that gonna look like and so that movie like tied it like it just hit me in such a basic psychological way like i was about to hit my own changes physical changes and it was dealing homosexuality and I was able to understand what that was. And then you having to sit with yourself and be like, what does that mean? What does that mean if I'm gay? What does it mean if, am I gonna turn into a fucking mugwump? Am I gonna, you know, what is going on? So it, it hit me right at that exact age where the themes, I didn't understand all of the, the deeper themes of drug addiction and those sorts of things that didn't speak to me, but I could understand that this was a person that was in pain that had done something that they were trying to run away from and that they were in the process of changing that they had no control over. And I, that really spoke to me for whatever... Wow, you just really summed it up right there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like all those aspects, you can break it down like that. Mm-hmm. But the movie definitely showed it. Exactly. In a non-conventional way. And that's what I love about the movie is that, you know, as I said, as far as the video effects is that he is showing metaphorical things in a physical way on the screen. So all of those, those, the monsters, the talking asshole, the bug, all that stuff are aspects of that person's mind and how they're coping with, because he's on drugs, clearly, through the whole thing. So he's hallucinating He's in the depths of despair and he's going through these changes and creating this whole world. And he's writing these reports, which in the movie would be the book Naked Lunch. But in the movie, we're seeing the writing process of that book. So as I watch the movie, I am definitely guilty of taking things at face value and not looking into the meaning of things. Because here I am watching a movie 
and here's a guy who's just mumbling <laughs> and doing weird shit, and there's all this other weird shit happening, but I am not thinking of the deeper meaning of any of it. And, and the th- here's the thing. It's like what I, what I like about Naked Lunch at the end of the day is that it works on a lot of different levels. If When you first see it, it hits you on a very basic level where you're like, what the fuck did I just see? Which is definitely my reaction. So we talked about some of the meanings, some of the things that, it's in, that it goes into. And then you can come back to it and rewatch it and you start to peel back the layers of that movie. And I, again, every time I see it, I pick up on some other little thing in it. Some other level of despair or uh, transformation or whatever it is where... I'm like, okay, I see another thing. And that's what is so brilliant about it. And as you're saying, you know, the composition of the shots, how they're blocked out, how they're filmed, like, it's so good. It looks great. The soundtrack is... Interesting fact. So the soundtrack is done by Howard Shore, and it's the same guy that did Silence of the Lambs. So now every time I see Naked Lunch, I think Silence of the Lambs was jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It was definitely, there was some times in that movie where the jazz got a little out of hand, in my opinion. Yeah, it went, but it it all adds to the ambiance and time frame of that particular. Like, here's a sad guy mumbling, let's go so avant-garde in the jazz (laughs) that it's out of control. Way the fuck out there. Yeah, it's amazing. With Cronenberg, he had a very... You know, he had a very specific lens that he wanted to explore the story. And again, you couldn't do that movie in a literal way. You couldn't even do it. You really couldn't even explore any. Even if you explored like one aspect of that movie, it would be immediately censored across the world. It's just, it is. You could not physically do the, the book in any sort of way. So I think it was a good move to do a have it more about the writer, about the the process of writing that movie, about the effects of drugs and everything else on him. And I think as far as effects go, yeah, I mean they're of a time, I suppose, but they're really effective. But they're still practical effects, which will always be better always. than CG effects, no matter what. Every day, forever. And I think, like, the Mugwump, that's a fucking amazing effect. Like yeah, that. in the documentary, you know, just seeing how they made all the parts of the Mugwump move, it's... How could you even come up with something like that? There was really intricate hand controls yep which did the whole thing yeah and it's with the typewriters too having so if you have a 20 second scene there's 13 different puppets to make that scene work for the different camera angles and the, the various things that it does and they are functional characters like i wasn't drawn out of the movie because of the effects like it i really felt more drawn in ultimately to those effects because you really saw like there is some sort of gravitational effect to say the typewriter bug butthole (laughs) the bug butthole thing character and i 
I I want every and maybe it's just a, this the perverse nature of myself, but I want everyone to experience the talking bug butthole typewriter. My question is on that. As I was watching it, one of the notes that I wrote down is why is it that this bug butthole thing the butthole talks but yet the bug is also talking too so it's coming out of both ends really (laughs) you know what i had never thought of that fact before because the mandibles move yeah the mandibles move. it's talking from its quote-unquote mouth but its butthole is also talking too that's a really good point and i've never explored that or thought about that because just a hairy, puckering, slimy asshole talking is enough to distract me from anything else. Okay, that's weird that that's the first thing that I thought about, but yet the last thing that you've thought about <laughs> yeah, in that I, movie. Yeah, I've never even... It never... It just... To me, it was like part of the mannerisms of this fucking creature. Like, it just... Because it's so farcical just by itself. A typewriter that is a beetle... And it has a bat, an asshole on its back that talks and is hairy, like just all of those combined. Like I just didn't even question that the mandibles were going back and forth, and it it was also talking from its front mouth. I I would like to know the creative process that you know ended with that being created. So in the the, the making up documentary they gave a bunch of sketches and so like with some of the sketches the the typewriter apparatus was on its side and i think just for the the practical effects of actually building this thing and then how the real life people have to interact with it that that's how it came to be because it's like it has to be a typewriter still it has to resemble some sort of writing device but there has to be a butthole somewhere a butthole somewhere and which is a tie into the book and a tie in again to the talking asshole uh, bit that they do in the movie. And I love that. I just, there's something about it that I just, I find so amusing. And, and when I watch this movie, you know, one of the things is like, you know, it's gone, my interpretation or my appreciation or however you want to say it has gone so far left field from number one the intent of the movie and number two what it originally affected me like i see it now and it's almost like a comedy like i'm not really <laughs> affected by it like i just think it's it's like silence of the lambs silence of the lambs i'm gonna go into this so and i don't know if anyone knows this but silence of the lambs is the greatest romantic comedy ever made <laughs> <laughs> Explain this, please. So, I would love to do an episode on this, and I'm not. And I would actually have a guest on with this because I, I, I've met someone in my life that is as passionate about Silence of the Lambs as I am. Like it's crazy. So, uh, so you see the movie so many times, and you become desensitized to like the horrifying aspects of it, the shock value. So, Silence of the Lambs coming out. And dealing with a serial killer, dealing with a a uh, you know a vulnerable woman, dealing with these very horrifying things. So, the, Silence of the Lambs is one of those movies that's from a female perspective. So the the main uh, protagonist is a 
small stature female person who is young, who is naive, and is forced into this really grotesque world and meets this guy, this man that is very dangerous and has to navigate the one person that she can glean insight from to stop another monster. So she's stuck between two monsters and trying to navigate her own world. So that alone, like that's its own thing. And then you have some of the grotesque things, the whole little dance routine. Mm, Yes. But once you've seen the movie so many times, I would say around like maybe the 20th time you've seen the movie, those aspects go away and you start, you forget them. And then you start to think. It becomes a whole different movie. (laughs) It becomes a whole different movie. And it becomes like, wow, this Hannibal Lecter guy, he's really romantic. He's trying to help this lady out in her career and he's doing all these romantic overtures and like Buffalo Bill becomes the comedic uh, element of the movie and not the horrifying. I don't know if there's any point in the movie where you could really take him seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, like he's so shocking and so, because I do remember like watching that movie and being totally disturbed by his behavior and being shot. Like, because when the movie came out, it really was something different. Because just the way that they. No one had really put a female character in that kind of context before and have her be the hero. Like, Sigourney Weaver, you know, as far as like a, a female protagonist goes is completely different than Cleary Starling like they're because like in a lot of ways like Sigourney Weaver's character was authoritative in charge knew what she was doing and then survived this this horrifying experience where Clarice was naive she was young she was not physically as strong as even her peers and she comes out being the heroine at the end of it and I think the perspective that perspective when the movie came out was really fresh and new and just the way that the movie was shot was very like it was very sensual it's very soft and people don't it has a contradictory like the subject matter versus the actual like what you saw on screen were kind of contradictory to each other because it was a very sensual movie but it dealt with like serial killers like think about it (laughs) the (laughs) movie Seriously though, think about it. It it was it's a very romantic movie. It really how it's shot. It's very soft, right? The just the cinematography itself is and the pacing of the movie and kind of how they're blocked off. Like if you took out the content of what Hannibal Lecter and Clarice are saying and then replace it with like generic romantic comedy dialogue, it would work. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't we doing this for another show? We will do it. We can do it. We're talking too much about it then. That's that's fine. No, no, no. I want to give people a hint. And maybe I'll just cut it off at the statement of Silence of the Lambs is the the greatest romantic the comedy of all ever. <laughs> ever. But that's how I truly feel. And I love... So... Actually, you know what? There is a movie that... Uh, fuck, I can't remember his name now. It's not because I'm drunk. We took it easy for this show. Uh, Elijah Wood. 
Yep. Was in a movie. Like a, Man- Maniac? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like that t- turns into a rom com, like sort of. Do you with like throwbacks to Silence of the Lambs with Goodbye Horses? And yeah. I love that song. I absolutely love that song. It's so iconic. It is. And is it, is it because of the movie or is it because it's a good song? I don't know. I feel that I would like that song regardless of the movie. Like that's kind of right up my alley. I feel the same way. Yeah. Like if I heard that in a club, I'd be like, "Ooh, what is this? This is this is what I like in life." Time to tuck and roll. <laughs> <laughs> tuck and run. <laughs> Put it right in there and, and yeah. So one of the things that I like to do is I have some Sansa Lambs uh, gifts. And what I'll do like at work is if we're in a, like a, a presentation and someone's talking or they're about to talk, I'll send them like a Buffalo Bill gif. Or jif. Or jif. I don't like that one. I like gif. That's what I know. Gif. Anyways, so I will send a GIF or GIF or whatever your your preference is to someone who's about to have to be very serious or is like having a very serious face. And then like my favorite one is there's a, a GIF where uh, Hannibal Lecter is looking through papers and like he licks his finger and then winks. <laughs> and like I'll send that as my as a a thing to someone while they're trying to be serious i'm a rotten person i mean i'll say that much there's worse things that you could do no there is worse things to do but i think it's very telling of my personality uh, you know the the torment that i like to put people through oh yeah see you got kitty there i got the cat got the cat all right so let's see we've gone through video effects that's good I, you know, if we could, I'd just like to talk about some of my observations in the movie. <laughs> Please tell me, give me Kyle's observations of the movie. I'm really curious, as being a first time viewer of that movie, what your insights are. Because I've been watching this movie on and off for 20 years. So, please. So, like, when I look at something, I, you know, maybe look at it in a different light than someone else, but. You know, I'm watching it and just thinking about Peter Weller's performance. It just seemed like he was more of RoboCop in this movie than he actually was <laughs> in the movie RoboCop. Or RoboCop 2. Oh. <laughs> Either what? Like, he was more robotic in his performance than anything else. And while most things, whether it be sound effects... Uh, music in the movie or other characters talking were at a normal audible lever level whenever it came to uh, Peter Weller's talking parts I mean the mumbling would just be so Man. low oh, like oh, so low that it would be okay. I almost felt like I wanted to turn the subtitles on for the movie I mean, really, I would have cranked it, but we were watching it late at my place in apartment building, and that's not really something you want to do. But it was very hard to, to hear, especially at the beginning of the movie. It was very hard to hear some of his lines. Um, okay, so 
I mean, in the movie, he's warned about Interzone. Mm-hmm. Like he, like right away, is like this is a place. It's like the Wild West. Some bad shit's going on in Interzone. What happens? He goes straight to Interzone. Like I'm being warned about this place. I shouldn't go there. Well, better go right there. Uh, better it's go like, straight to that place. He turned into a teenager and was like, "I am going to do exactly what I am told not to do." You know what's interesting is that I don't remember that. I don't remember him being warned about Interzone as much as he's just told to go to Interzone. Like, your mission... And that, too. Yeah, it's like, don't go there. It's a bad place. And then, like, this is where you need to be. We're here. So what's interesting... So, like, one of the things with... I I suppose speaking to that is that... uh, So, Interzone, in reality, is Tangier, which is in Morocco. And... He run and and I don't I don't exactly know if like I know that he was on the lamb in real life he was on the lamb he was wanted for manslaughter he actually was charged and convicted of manslaughter uh, but he initially ran off because I believe Morocco doesn't have extradition is the reason one of the reasonings that he went there that would make sense then. and uh, so in the book Naked Lunch. Tangier becomes interzone. And what I was so interesting is that how it's presented in the movie is very like like wonderfully ethnic and and very interesting, but like in the in the movie and in the book everything is described in like a very cold like corporate way, like interzone and Anexia is the thing I was trying to describe. So Anexia is uh, France. Other, yes. The other part. Although it's confusing at the end of the movie. So at the end of the movie, he goes to Anexia. They're wearing like comrade and speaking like in Russian accents, which are the detectives from the beginning of the movie, if you didn't notice. I don't know if I did. Yeah. So they're the same detectives that originally arrested him for the bug powder incident. They appear as like comrade soldiers for Anexia, but Anexia is France. And they're driving that sweet tank vehicle thing. Yes, like the bo- the border patrol agent. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were speaking in a Russian inflection, but it was like it, terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. But they're supposed to be French, so I don't really understand that per se. Yeah. But that's that's some good uh, insight that I didn't pick up. I guess is that it's terrible. Don't go there. I'm going to go directly to that place that is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, like I had mentioned earlier, um, one of the characters in the movie is played by Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> yes. I can't think of his name right now, but he did have the good line about, you know, there are no accidents. He is the one who says that line in the movie. Yep. Um, and then, as far as one-liners go, I'm a big fan of one-liners. You'll hear me making a lot of them in these podcasts. But uh, th- my favorite one was at the end of the movie. Um, 
Bill Peter Weller's character says that the zone takes care of its own. <laughs> <laughs> the zone takes care of its own. Which is like some of the shit that I say in my day-to-day <laughs> life. Like, I say some things like, you know, do what you want to do, don't do what you want to do. Or like, if you're aware of it, take care of it. That kind of thing. The zone takes care of its own is right up that alley. So I really appreciated that too. So do you feel that you'll use that in your everyday life now? I don't know. Well, and Bilbo Baggins is played by Ian Holm. Ian, yeah, okay, that's what it is. And then Julian Sands plays Eve's Cloquet. And then Roy Scheider plays Dr. Benway, the guy from Jaws. Yes. So there's a lot of really famous actors in this movie. How old is Bilbo Baggins? Dude, that guy is... He looked old in that movie. The thing is, it's like he's looked old since 1981. He's looked old. Since Alien, Alien, he's looked old. Because he was the android in Alien. So he was born in 1931. Wow. Yeah, he old fuck. He old... What's your other observations? Let's talk about the, what I wrote in my notes here, the Dick Monster typewriter hump machine. Oh my God, that is a, <laughs> that's just a pure joy. It's a pure joy. Because, you know, speaking of what you were saying earlier with mutations, grotesque mutations, like this thing, It really goes. We're going from one thing to another thing to another thing. So it starts out as a typewriter, an Arabic typewriter. The Mujahideen. The Moadib. (laughs) The Moadib. (laughs) Paul Moadib. So it starts out as a typewriter. And when the fingers really get flying on it, it turns into like a... Some sort of sexual open gaping wound which hands go deep into. Yes. (laughs) And from there, then on the backside of the typewriter, some sort of hole opens up from which a dick type thing (laughs) snakes its way out of. And then the thing just folds out into this weird sea scorpion flying humping machine that joins what makes an orgy almost on the floor. So it ties. So there's a very specific purpose to that. So again, David Cronenberg is trying to avoid an X rating. So he has to sometimes metaphorically represent physical actions. Sometimes he's physically representing metaphorical things. So he's talking about sex, like they're having sex, but he's not going to depict actual sex. He's going to depict it through a visual metaphor. And so that typewriter is the middle, the visual metaphor of intercourse. So... I think that if you were trying to avoid an X rating, just having people bang probably would have been a better <laughs> option than having this thing. Yeah, because that thing is like, it has like pulsating breasts. It has a vagina that ejaculates a penis. And then it's got a bunch of like 
dirty danglers at the end of it. It's like a oversized face hugger is really what it is. Yeah. Almost. But like nothing malicious, just all like sexual and drippy. Right. Yes. <laughs> there's lots of there's lots of KY jelly used in this movie because there's lots of moisture. Slippery, slippery when wet. Yes. So and and that's another thing that I really think is really cool about the movie that sticks with you is just where he chooses to be literal or metaphorical or how he chooses to represent certain actions. It's it just it fucks like seeing that that fucking creature or seeing the typewriter butthole things like you will always remember it. You, you will, will always never forget. You it. will never. Where were you when you saw <laughs> the dick typewriter humping machine? <laughs> you know, you will very clearly remember. And I think, and maybe that goes to like part of like why I want to share that movie with people because it is so like at first, yeah, you're like, what the hell did I just see? But then like when you're able to step back and objectively discuss what you're looking at and what you've experienced, like, it's a it's it's very vivid vivid imagery and and unforgettable things and like it's not like stepping back from it today you're not like what the fuck like we could talk about it and it's like that's a, a very inventive use of film and video effects and actually you know what it makes me not feel so bad about myself cuz Sometimes I feel like I have zero creativity unless it comes to really perverted, <laughs> saying really perverted shit. But there is no way that I could ever think of something so perverted and fucked up and weird as that. <laughs> yes. So that I've, uh, there's that. And I think that it's such a great, so Naked Lunch does such, the movie does such a great job of creating extremely grotesque memorable imagery in the same way that the book itself is memorable but does it in a way that really has to walk a fine line to not be basically censored or banned and so you think about that effect this movie came out it wasn't banned and it showed all of this very sexual implied sexual things because like that penis like when that penis thing came out of the vagina and it was like it veiny because you, you recognize that like it was a veiny dick coming out that vagina, right? It, yes. It was. Yeah. It the movie I mean, was what other kind would there be? <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, it's so over the top. But it was never. It wasn't banned. Like it, it's it's not considered pornography, and that's an incredible thing to be able to achieve in a movie that's creative that's being provocative and it doesn't end up being in the pornography aspect of the spectrum and again i think you're going to remember that movie it's going to stick with you the mugwumps and the the jism that comes out of their penises which come out of their heads come out of their heads and uh yeah and then it's like the jism is a drug itself that is addictive and it's the yeah. new drug like you think about like just all the multiple layers of what's going on or what's implied it's like you still like you're always questioning what the hell am i what did what did i just see 
Another thing was the large aquatic centipede. Yes. That one of the drugs in the movie, perhaps the book, I don't know, was made out of. Lots of centipede stuff going on. Mm-hmm. His wife was a space centipede. Two factors with that. So you have William S. Burroughs' negative connotation of insects being soulless and uh, a bad thing. And then you have Cronenberg's fascination and love of bugs. So like the fly, obviously. Like you, So it's a mix of the two worlds. So I think that the drug, the black powder... Is supposed to represent methadone, I believe. The initial drug, peripherum, is supposed to be heroin. And then I think mugwump jism, I'm not sure, might be hash. I'm not exactly sure if those are the direct correlations because, again, David Cronenberg used those, he punched up the drugs to represent other things for the narrative, you know, uh, in purposes basically so there weren't exactly a tit-for-tat representation of an actual drug uh but you know but vaguely touching on it so like at the end of the movie uh dr benway is revealed to be uh the housekeeper for the frost couple or joan and bilbo baggins and talking about how Mugwumpism is the wave of the future because there's a much less political uh, setbacks that go with it. But then it's like this instantly like addictive drug and and, and how he applies it. So he gets a, it's either Mugwumpism or the the uh, the giant aquatic centipede thing. Like he's taking the drug and just applying it directly to his skin and holding it there. Yeah, he does that with the centipede powder. Bill does that in the yeah. movie on his neck. Not to an open wound or anything like that. Kind of in an area where there's a bruise, but yeah, just holds it there. Interesting. And so and that's the thing, is like and that's what I love about it, because it's open to interpretation. It tells a story, and I think it's more important that the story elicits a reaction out of you more than the literal thing that it's doing. So it's provoking a reaction out of you, but it's it's you can't rely on this the literal representation of what's happening as what it actually means. And I really love movies like that that don't you know, again like Neon Demon. There's not a whole lot of dialogue in that movie. There's not a whole lot of like you kinda have to infer what's actually happening with that movie. It doesn't hold your hand. And I like movies like that that are a little more challenging to traditional viewers. And that's also like, I would regard that as two movies in one as well. Neon Demon? Yeah. Yes, most definitely. What are your other notes? The last thing I just wanted to touch on was there, one of my notes here, I don't even remember writing this either. Is probably my favorite thing that I have. Oh, and it touches real close to home, too. <laughs> and I, I wrote down human and all human interaction is awkward. <laughs> yes. 
And it is. I mean, that's totally true. No matter what year it is, no matter what the situation, yep. all human interaction is awkward. Some truths transcend every generation. And so and I think you're you're right on that. So one of the things that they talk about with Cronenberg's intention of the film and trying to convey is that Bill is lonely in this movie. He's out of place. He's literally in a another world and he's in the grips of drug addiction mourning the death of his wife the implication that he did it and he can't connect with anyone and if he if you quick noticed the some of the reports that he's writing so he has two typewriters he has the martinelli and he has the clark nova and he has two different sentences on both typewriters and so one is i don't remember if were they addressed to different people too yeah they were addressed one was addressed to the Allen Ginsberg and one was addressed to Jack Kerouac. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. And one of the things is, I'm so lonely, I can't connect with anybody. So it really delves into, if you see him in the movie, and like part of the reason why Peter Weller's performance is, is the way it is, is because it's almost like he's two people in that movie, but you never see the other person represented. It's always talked about. Like, they went to a party and he did quite the scene. He, he did X, Y, Z, but he doesn't recall it. We never saw it. And we, we never, never saw heard it. about it until afterwards. Or his friends come to visit him and they're saying, Hey, this book is amazing. And he's like, I'm not writing a book. Yeah. And I'm at s- no part in the movie had we seen him write any part of what would be this book. Right. He goes in he, so he's completely like, separated from his actions he's clearly in his own pit of despair and that's really what the movie shows this is this man at one of the lowest points of his life and just totally out of his gourd high and full of grief and hallucinating these struggles that he's having so really what we're seeing through the whole movie is a man hallucinating his struggles on the screen for us to see. And that's where Cronenberg is so effective in his filmmaking is that we experience all those same feelings that he has. We get to experience them. We get to experience the what the fuck. Because like you touched on the homosexuality piece like what what the fuck what it's in there but it's also like we experience that as he does which he's like what what like he shows up at a gay bar, which it's it's not specifically said as a gay bar. It's no. addressed as a dive bar, but he's clearly in a fifties era gay bar waterfront dive. And he has no idea how he got there. But if in the movie there are no accidents. There are no accidents. There are no accidents. So clearly the first time he meets the mugwump. This was no accident. It was no accident. He ended up there. That it's part of the transformation that may have begun before certainly went in earnest. So it's again, it's a it's a deep movie, and you keep looking at the scenes, and you could really start to piece together all these, you know, the various things as they tell it. It's great. What else you got? That's about it. The only other thing I suppose I could talk about is with all the shocking imagery and everything on that. 
we might not have touched on what other people may have thought was the most shocking. And that's when Kiki and um, the other character, Cloquet. Cloquet, were in the giant bird cage, kind of melded as one creature, one absorbing the other in some sort of sexual dance, I guess. I don't know. So the best way I, I think I could describe it is that clearly it's depicting unwanted sex. Basically, Cloquet is attracted to young interzone boys, as was described in the earlier part of the movie. And Bill wants something. He wants a contact with Benway. So he brings Kiki with him, knowing that Cloquet likes inner zone boys and likes Kiki specifically. So as as the setup is, Cloquet wants to show him his birdcage. And Bill has to go, hey, go to the fucking, go see his fucking birds. And then he, Bill gets up to investigate, I suppose, to try and find the connections to Benway or whatever the situation is. And he walks into it. And what he walks into, which in reality, or the reality be is that it would be gay sex. He walks into Cloquet morphed into a giant centipede. I was just going to say something about it being a centipede. So thank Yeah. You. So he morphs into a giant centipede and he's like literally penetrating all of his body with his, all of his little tendril things and like stretching his, like it's some Hellraiser shit actually. Like yeah. He's like being sort of ripped apart. And so it's a, it's a physical representation of, of a metaphor of a actual physical act. It's crazy. And that's how you, that's the only way that you could skirt around depicting gay sex or any of these taboo subjects that they address in the movie is by taking, taking something to a completely different extreme where you're like, what the fuck am I seeing? Yeah. No, that's good. That's a good thing to bring up. I, I completely, you know, I completely forgot about addressing that. All right. Well, if you don't have anything. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's about it for me. All right. Well, you've been listening to another episode of Two Poor Bastards. This is Eric. This is Kyle. We'll see you next time. 